Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. We're going to be having a chat about Johann Gutenberg, the inventor of one of the most important inventions in human history, the printing press. And it is difficult to overstate just how important this invention has ended up being when it comes to the development and the progress of human civilization. It is a device, and you'll hear me say this a lot this week, it is a device that changed the world forever. Before Gutenberg... Books were expensive. They were somewhat unco- uncommon, really. There weren't a lot of them around. They were often copied out by hand. They were objects that required painstaking, very costly work in order to be created. But, uh, you know, today we, we don't think about books like this. We take them for granted. We take what they represent for granted. Information and knowledge passed around, spread freely, as anyone who can you know, read and write can share their thoughts and ideas very readily. But it wasn't always so. And the only reason that books and the ideas that they contained were able to spread so far and wide was because of Gutenberg's marvellous invention. Gutenberg's printing press could quickly and cheaply mass-produce text, which caused an entire industry to flourish, like never, never before, the printing industry. And in the wake of his printing press, books were created in unprecedented numbers and in ideas and knowledge and concepts and information was spread to more people than ever before. And this, of course, in turn brought about enormous changes to human society on cultural and scientific and artistic and religious and so many other levels as well. Civilization would never be the same. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the, Pro- the, the Protestant Reformation, all of these enormous societal shifts were sped on by the printing press, advancing human knowledge like like never before. And today in the 21st century, we're still lucky enough to have, broadly speaking, free access to any information that we might, might seek out. And the fact that you can sit and listen to this dumb podcast is a testament to the fact that knowledge has, broadly speaking, been democratized. And the only reason that we live in a world where information is shared so so readily and so quickly is because of Gutenberg and his printing press, because they that because this invention took knowledge and information out of the hands of the wealthy elites with their book collections and instead, as I say, democratized it, spread books and the ideas inside them all across the world. I really can't overstate this. The printing press is a monumentally important invention, and of course, we'll talk about why in this episode, but we'll also talk about Gutenberg, what we know of his life, how his invention came to be, how it works, and then, of course, in due course, how it changed the world. As ever, a lot to get across today. So here we go. Let's get into the story of Johann Gutenberg and his incredible printing press. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, well, look, honestly, as is sometimes the case with half-assed history, we don't know exactly when. I've mentioned in previous episodes how when we talk about someone who is quite unremarkable at the time of their birth, we don't often have all that many details about their early life and even their birth date. And that's the case with Johann Gutenberg. He was born in Mainz in modern-day Germany, uh, sometimes, sometime between 1394 and 1404. Today, his official birthday is, uh, is, in, is the year 1400. Um, he was born as the son of a wealthy merchant whose name was Friele Gensfleisch zur Laden and his wife Elsa Würich. 
Now, Gutenberg's family was reasonably well off, but otherwise pretty unremarkable, to be honest. Uh, and this meant that we don't really have anything in the way of records about his birth or his childhood, his, his early years, hardly anything to go on at all, really. Like, if, you know, we've we've talked about the childhoods of, of other people that are perhaps nearer to us in history or who were more notable when they were children, The you know, a young princeling or an heir to a kingdom. They would have had their younger years chronicled and recorded, but Gutenberg... He was just the middle son of a merchant, and uh, when he was a young bloke, no one knew that he would go on to shape world history in the way that he did, so people didn't write that much down about him. Interestingly, um, before we move on as well, uh, the reason that he's known as Johann Gutenberg, uh, even though that wasn't his, his parents' last name, uh, is because at this, at, the, at this point in time back in Mainz, um, wealthy families often took their surnames from the houses that they lived in, and so Gutenberg, he grew up, surprise, surprise, in the Gutenberg house in Mainz. Uh, which is why he became known to history as Johann Gutenberg, although his full name is Johann Gansfleisch zu Laden zum Gutenberg, which is quite a mouthful there. Anyway, as I say, don't know too much about Gutenberg's early years, even beyond his childhood. Um, in 1411, there was an uprising against the wealthy political elite in Mainz, and Gutenberg's family was reasonably wealthy, and they were at risk, so they moved. They left Mainz, moved to a nearby smaller town called Elkfeld am Rhein, um, and a while later... Gutenberg may have moved to Erfurt to study goldsmithing at the university there. His dad might have been a goldsmith, so it could have been him continuing the family trade. But then other sources indicate that Friedler worked as a as a, a seller of cloth and fabric. So honestly, who knows? I'm sorry I don't have better information for you. This is all maybes and perhapses and all the rest of it. But it is just the best we can do with Gutenberg and his story. We really don't know all that much about him in his early years. Anyway. Gutenberg uh, definitely ended up being pretty well educated. He learned Latin in addition to his native German, and he did ultimately get into goldsmithing as a profession once he was a grown man. But then, until the year 1434, we just don't have a clue what he got up to. He just fell off the face of the earth altogether. We, uh, Look, he might have Got, he might, might have been goldsmith, he probably was, but we just don't know. There is this gap in his history where we don't have the foggiest idea about what he did, where he went, who he spent time with. Um, but in March 1434, he crops up again, living in Strasbourg, working with gold uh, and enrolled in the town militia. And we know this. The, the reason he, he sort of appears back on the historical record here is because of a letter that he wrote that has survived. Um, and we can continue to track him from there, from 1434. The years between 1434 and even, you know, as I say, the sparse details we have about his younger years are complete mystery to us. Could have been doing anything at all. Anyway, from 1434 onwards, we can trace and track him a little bit. In 1437, he was working with uh, wealthy merchants in the gem trade. Uh, and that same year, there are some legal documents to do with him breaking off an engagement with a woman named Enelin, although we don't know what came of that, if he even, you know, did get married or what happened. Again, no idea. So for a man who forever changed the world, we really, really do not know all that much about Johann Gutenberg. By the time we get to 1439, um, we do know that his printing press is its coming our way within a decade or so. It might already be a concept that's, uh, you know, kicking around in, in Gutenberg's head. But there's still, you know, a long way to go before we get there. And there are a couple of interesting tales about Gutenberg that we do know for us to get across before that. In 1439, he got involved in a business scheme uh, to sell mirrors to religious pilgrims who were visiting Aachen, the city of Aachen. And you're thinking, okay, well, hang on one moment. What the bloody hell is going on here? Why are pilgrims buying mirrors? Well, it's because of this. Aachen whole, uh, held a collection of supposedly holy relics from Charlemagne himself, right? They've been, they've been hanging around for hundreds of years. 
And every year there would be a festival in Aachen where pilgrims could come and visit these relics. Well, Gutenberg and some of his associates, they sought and received investment to produce highly polished mirrors to sell to these pilgrims. And you won't believe why. There was a belief that if you held up a mirror to these holy relics, they would capture the holy light, and I do hope you can hear the inverted commas there, that emanated from these relics, um, which sounds a bit bonkers, but actually now that I've said that, now that I think about it, um, I suppose it's actually not all that dumb, because these days we travel great distances across the world and use our magic little pocket computers to capture the actual literal light in various places around the world just to take home with us and you know, cover it for ourselves and never look at those travel photos again. So maybe I shouldn't have a go at these pilgrims. I don't know. Maybe, I mean, they didn't have cameras, so they just used mirrors instead. Fair enough. I'm, I'm going to stop slagging them off. Anyway, Gutenberg and his business partners, they sniffed an opportunity to make some real money here. So they secured funding, spent it to make these highly polished, very nice mirrors. And then Aachen was hit by huge floods and the festival was cancelled. So Gutenberg is deep, deep in the hole here with these investors. The mirrors are useless. He can't sell them to anyone. And he's going to have to wait a whole year to try to offload them. And in the meantime, his creditors are coming knocking. So I'm, look, sorry to say I can't really, you know, finish this story satisfactorily. I don't know if he did manage to sell them. But one thing we do know is that when the creditors came a knocking, as I said, wanting the return on their investment, we know that he wasn't able to pay them. And so what he offered them instead of the cold hard cash that he owed them, what he offered them instead was the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a marvellous invention, a, great, a, a very secret one too, a marvellous idea that he had, some project that he wasn't telling anyone about. I mean, we can safely guess that it was indeed the printing press around the time he was known to have bought things like expensive printing supplies and the wood with which to build the press itself. But he remained very tight-lipped about the whole project, and with good reason. It was a device that would, as I've said a few times, bring about a monumental shift in human civilization. It would change the world forever. And it's thought that perhaps Gutenberg used this to leverage a little more time and maybe a little more money out of the people to whom he owed money after this failed attempt to sell these mirrors. But certainly, whatever the case was, Gutenberg did manage to establish lines of credit. He did find investors for this marvellous idea that he worked on very, very hard as we move into the 1440s. As he had been working on this printing press for some time, you know, throughout this, even if, even if it was just on a conceptual level, we don't have the greatest idea because of how secret he was. We don't have secret if he was. We don't have the greatest idea about how much progress he'd made, how much success he'd had. But we do know that he, as I say, worked very hard on it, and we can guess at where he got some inspiration from. He looked at things like wine presses, screw presses, um, the things that we, you know, devices that we used to squeeze juice out of grapes so it could be made into wine. And obviously, obviously a printing press has some very important similarities, using the pressure of a large flat plate to affix ink to a page rather than squishing grapes. Um, there's a, lot, a long way to go yet, but as we move into the mid-1440s, Gutenberg, he's working on this uh, on this project, doesn't have a whole lot to show to the world for all of his labours and still borrowing a lot of money from different people in order to fund his secret in, in, endeavours. He's going to investors and friends and family, anyone at all who might lend him some money. But he is determined to get this show on the road and unveil his secret project to the world because he knows that he's onto something incredible. However, he's not there yet. So while he's busy off, you know, securing money off of anyone who'll give it to him, while he's busy working on this secret project, he's very, very reluctant to talk to uh, extensively with anyone. Let's zoom out a little bit 
and talk about printing more generally and set the stage for Gutenberg here to come along and just completely change everything. Now, Gutenberg, as we know, he didn't invent printing. He just changed the way it was done. Printing has been around for a long, long time before Gutenberg. And the leading technique before Gutenberg, woodblock printing, had already been invented in China centuries beforehand. Long-time listeners will remember this. Episode 143, Get Across It, the four great inventions, one of which, of course, was woodblock printing. You can hear all about it there. But if you want to go back even further, long, long way back, we can go as far back as ancient Mesopotamia, where they used cylindrical seals uh, to make impressions uh, across wet clay. They rolled them across wet clay, which, you know, broadly speaking, mar- marked the beginning of humankind's use of printing to transmit information. Although I guess if we go back even for like tens of thousands of years, uh, you can see humans made uh, stencils of their hands, kind of like kindergartners, by blowing pigment across them on uh, on cave walls, which I guess technically counts as printing. It's a type of stencil that's printing. Like, it doesn't, doesn't transmit, transmit a whole lot of information other than, you know, sort of like toilet store graffiti saying Frank was here, but still counts, I guess. In any case, what we'd more sort of formally think of as printing, definitely a little closer to home uh, to us today in the 21st century. Um, And and printing technology, it spread from places like Mesopotamia. uh, In China, in the 3rd century BCE, seals were used to print on pottery in in a sort of similar vein. And then a couple of hundred years later, there's evidence of blocks made of stone or clay or even bronze that were inked and used to print onto fabric. But it was woodblock printing that was the first major revolution in the world of printing, carving an entire page out of wood, smearing ink all over the carved out raised characters, and then pressing that against paper. This allowed printers to mass produce the same page over and over and over again, tens of thousands of times per block of wood before it wore out. But this technique came with significant downsides. The printing process wasn't modular. Once a page was carved, that was the only thing you could print it with. It you print with it. You couldn't change it. So you, you know, better bloody watch your spelling. Let me tell you, because otherwise you're stuck with a with a a, a bit of wood that's no good. The other uh, other thing, of course, is that wood isn't super durable. I mean, tens of thousands of pages does sound like a lot, and it certainly is. But by the same token. It, this doesn't last forever, and the longer that you use the same bit of wood to print the same page, it's going to wear out. It's going to become, you know, it's going to not going to be as crisp and as clear, and ultimately you're going to have to bin it when uh, when the wood finally starts falling apart. So, as I say, some significant downsides. But even with these downsides, woodblock printing led to the spread of books and literacy across East Asia, and it was further improved upon in the 11th century CE when a bloke named Bi Sheng invented movable type. Now, movable type, the idea of taking, rather than just carving a whole page into a bit of wood and then that's it, it's set and you can't change it. Bixing made small ceramic tiles, each with a different character on them, which could be moved about before or even during the printing process, which of course would give you much more flexibility with what you printed. However, this invention didn't really catch on in Asia and a couple of different reasons, right? First of all, no one could figure out how to make the ceramic tiles the same size and shape, which was a problem because, you know, you would end up with uneven and messy looking lettering. And on top of that, you know, given that you're printing in East Asian languages like Chinese, you needed so many different characters, tens of thousands of different characters in in, in these languages. So, it really wasn't, it was neither the right time nor the right place for this technology to come along, even though movable type had been around for some time before Gutenberg came and revolutionized the printing industry. It just wasn't the right time for this invention to catch on. Although, of course, it's a completely different story once Gutenberg brought about his take on uh, on this type of technology. Anyway, 
These printing technologies had spread, that spread west throughout the Middle East and into Europe. Woodblock printing and movable type were well known in Europe uh, in the time of our mate Gutenberg. But it was Gutenberg who would take these ideas and implement them in an all new way. And as I say, do it in a time and a place in history where the idea could really take off. Bishink, full credit to him. He was onto a very good thing. Movable type was a hell of an invention. But he wasn't in the right time. He wasn't in the right place to see it flourish. Gutenberg, however, he was. And as he worked through the 1440s to create his new press, the world edged ever closer to a device that would, as I say, change the course of human history. In the year 1450, Gutenberg had finally completed his grand project and he was ready to unveil it to the world. The printing press and an all-new take on movable type, this time with a type made from metal rather than ceramics, cast from moulds. This movable type was very durable. It was quick and easy to set. Uh, it created extremely clear letters and it could be create, could be made very simply and very rapidly. And this is one of the most important aspects of Gutenberg's new approach to printing technology. His so-called hand mould allowed printers to create movable type more quickly and reliably than ever before. Unlike wood, this metal type wouldn't wear out quickly. Unlike ceramics, it could be made at uniform size very easily. And it's thought that Gutenberg's knowledge of metals, thanks to his time spent as a goldsmith, allowed him to formulate the perfect metal alloy for this movable type. In fact, the alloy that he created, which is made of uh, of lead and tin and some other metals, it's still used in the printing industry today as it's durable, it's easy to cast with a low melting point, and it's quick to make. Anyway, with Gutenberg's movable type, printers were now able to set type quicker and more efficiently than ever before. But it wasn't just the type. Oh, no, no, no. The new press itself was revolutionary in how it operated and just how many pages it could create per day. I talked before about wine presses. Gutenberg was inspired by them, by you know, other screw presses, kind of like enormous flat vices. Um, they've been used in the printing process and in other areas for a very, very long time before Gutenberg's time. But just to give you an idea of how Gutenberg completely revolutionized the printing process with his new invention, let me, let me hit you with some numbers here. If you wanted to reproduce a, a page, a single page of writing before Gutenberg, you had a couple of options. You could use a scribe who could maybe at best produce a couple of copies per day and of course would have a very sore hand by the end of it. Alternatively, you could use a traditional printing method like the screw press or woodblock printing or whatever else. And this might end up with you getting, on a good day, 40 to 50 copies. So this is one page that you've taken down to the print shop and you've ended up after a full day's work with 50 copies of it, right? With Gutenberg's new press, you could now create 3,600 copies per day, several orders of magnitude more than beforehand. And this would go on to have an immeasurable, an absolutely colossal impact on not only just printing, but the world at large, as information could be printed and copied and spread at a faster and faster rate than ever before. But before we talk about that, let's actually talk about the press itself and the process of printing here, because it's a fascinating device. Absolutely fascinating. I do recommend you go online. There are videos uh, of people operating these old Gutenberg presses, showing you how they work. I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain the process here on the podcast. Um, the printing press, Gutenberg printing press, has two parts to it. It's got the press itself, which is just a big flat board called a platen that can be pressed down with great force. 
Um, and the really ingenious part is this, this, I don't know what it's called, a sliding drawer thing that opens up like a book on a hinge. Um, it actually opens up twice. So if it can be folded over two times. So again, hard, hard to explain, but um, if you imagine a book is L-shaped with a single hinge, uh, this thing is U-shaped with two hinges. So it can kind of fold over on itself twice. They're like a very fancy birthday card. Uh, one of the sides of this U-shape uh, thing has a place for the type to be put. It's called a type form or a press bed. This is where you put the metal type facing up ready to be inked. Using a wooden frame called a galley, you go through and you set all the type in the configuration you want. Each little bit of metal has a small little, little slot thing to make sure it's all properly aligned. And with your type all set, you mount that into the type form and you begin the inking process. Gutenberg didn't just invent a new type of well, type. He also invented a new type of ink that was purposefully suited for his printing press. And I call it an ink. You're probably imagining like, you know, you know the little thing you dip a, a fountain pen in, very, uh, you know, very fluid, um, not very viscous. Well, this ink was actually very sticky. It was an oil-based ink that was actually a lot more like nail varnish than what you'd think of as ink, sticky and viscous. It didn't pour out very quickly or anything else like that. So you'd plop a bit of that onto the table. And then you would use two leather balls stuffed with wool and mounted with handles. So sort of like two uh, cheerleaders pom-poms without the tassels flying off them like this, right? Uh, the leather that was used is often taken from dogs. It was dog skin leather because dog skin leather doesn't have any pores. There's no holes in it. And uh, you pour the ink on the table. You'd rub the leather balls around in the ink and against each other until they had a nice even coating. Uh, you didn't want to get too much ink onto the balls because then the, the ink would smudge all over the type. You didn't want to have too little on it because then there wouldn't be enough ink on the page and it wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be able to be read clearly. And it was quite a skilled job uh, taking these, these leather balls that were covered in ink and pressing them onto the type very carefully, uh, the type that's set in the galley, uh, waiting in the type form, because you wanted to cover the raised letters with ink, but again, not too much. So it doesn't smear and not too little. Otherwise, it would be indistinct. Very, very careful, very, very difficult job that required a lot of skill as a badly inked page would obviously be unusable. Anyway, with a type inked, we now move over to the other sections of the foldable U-shaped part to the tympan, which is the middle bit. Uh, and this is where the paper is mounted. So the paper itself, uh, Gutenberg, he, he printed sometimes on vellum, uh, but often it was done on paper. But the paper had to be slightly damp so the ink could properly affix itself. This ink is very sticky and it affixed itself better to paper that was slightly wet. Um, but what was really ingenious about this tympan here, what, what was really clever, is it had two pins that stuck out from the middle of the tympan, two pins that would pierce the paper as you put it down on top of the tympan. And you think, well, why? Why are you damaging the paper like this? Well, I'll tell you. When you were printing these pages, often, obviously, when you're printing a book, you wanted to print on both sides and you needed the text to line up and be in exactly the same place on both sides of the page. And it was no good trying to align the paper uh, in any way that was going to be even slightly uh, inaccurate, because then once you bound the book, you can have you can have words and, and lines and stuff all off at different angles, and you needed to get it absolutely perfect. So, you would press two holes into the paper with these pins, and when and after you'd finished printing on one side, when you flipped the paper over, you could guarantee that you would print in exactly the same place on the other side of the page by replacing the paper with the pins through the holes that had already been made. Very very clever. Very, very clever way to solve a problem there, putting those two little pins there. Anyway, so you whack the paper on the tympan you, with, with its two little holes. Um, and then the final bit of the U-shaped section, which was called the frisket, 
would then be folded over on top of the paper. The frisket had sections cut out of it where the type could touch the paper, but it protected the rest of the paper where there wasn't to be any printing. So this would protect the paper from other smears or smudges or, or damage or anything else like that. It just had little windows cut into it where the the, the, the type could uh, could uh, could go through and, and, and ink the paper properly. So the frisket folds over the tympan, the tympan folds over the type form, and then the whole thing slides under the platen, under the big press, kind of like a drawer almost. You then take uh, take hold of the enormous handle, great big huge handle above the platen, which would engage the screw press and the platen would lower down onto the folded, uh, this folded section, pressing the paper against the ink type. And then once it was firmly affixed, you would lift the, uh, the screw back up, unfold the tympan and the frisket, remove the paper. And that was that you had printed a page. Now it sounds like quite a long and a complicated process, but in, in reality, it was actually only one of those things. Certainly was complicated, but it actually did not take a very long time because printers worked in teams. There would be one bloke setting type, one inking, one preparing the paper, one pulling the lever that operated the press. It was a multi-person job and they could work together very quickly to produce, as I say, thousands upon thousands of pages a day. This is a staggering output when compared to a scribe and their, you know, three or four pages or, or even, you know, a more traditional approach to printing with the screw press or the uh, uh, or the woodblock printing. This was outstripping these older methods of printing by, as I say, orders of magnitude. So this was the printing process. This was the printing press. Gutenberg's invention was unveiled to the world, ready to make its mark. And Gutenberg, in order to make sure his invention was a success, what did he do? He went further into debt. He borrowed a lot of money off of a bloke whose name was Johann Fust in order to get things going. Now that the press was ready, he needed a premises. And so he went into partnership with Fust, set himself up in Mainz in a building called the Humbrechthof. And he set up a workshop with a team of printers ready to ready to operate this press. And I'm very happy to say the orders poured in straight away. He was very, very successful from the get-go, Gutenberg, with, uh, with this brand new invention, this marvel of the age. He printed poetry and religious documents and grammar books and all sorts of other stuff. Look, I'll be honest, we don't have the best idea of what he printed because he didn't put his name or his printing company's name or the date on most of the stuff that he printed. So it is a sort of it's a bit ambiguous. But we do know that within a couple of years, in 1452, he got his big break when he began to print copies of the Christian Bible. These Bibles were huge with large type, 42 lines to the page, and they were immensely popular. Between 1452 and 1455, he printed either 158 or 180 of them. And these Bibles were the first major book to be mass printed with this new type of movable type. Some of them still exist today. There are around 49 surviving copies spread across Europe and North America, although only 21 of them are actually complete after all these years. But the reason that these Gutenberg Bibles, as they, as they became known, are so significant is, is, is because of what they represent. They represent the real beginning of the printing revolution, which ushered in a new age of widespread information and accelerated human civilization onto where it is today, the well-named information age. We'll get to that in a little bit. We've got a lot to talk about in that regard. But before we get there, let's finish the story of Gutenberg first. And I'm sorry to say, it wasn't always a happy one, to begin with at least, after his uh, immense success uh, once the, the printing press was first revealed to the world. 
1456, after the Bible project was complete, Gutenberg and Fust, his investor, they ran afoul of each other. They, they got deep into strife, into conflict. Uh, Fust accused Gutenberg of misusing the money that he had lent him and actually took him to court in order to try to reclaim his investment. Gutenberg owed him a lot of money, over 2,000 guilders, and the court, sadly for Gutenberg, sided with Fust. Gutenberg was stripped of not only the money, but also his workshop and half of the Bibles that he printed as well. A devastating blow for him as it essentially, it rendered him bankrupt. However, he pulled himself together, he built another press, he opened another print shop, and he continued his work in the printing business throughout the rest of the 1450s. As the technology took off, he managed to salvage his situation somewhat. And into the 1460s, things improved for him further. He was recognised by an archbishop in Mainz for his achievement with the printing press. He was given a minor noble title, which came with a yearly pension, not too bad. But sadly, it seems that at this stage in his life, he is an older man at this point, his health began to fail him. He was losing his eyesight, age was getting the better of him more generally, and so he ultimately left the printing game and retired at some point after 1460. And sadly, he didn't live out the decade. Johann Gutenberg died on the 3rd of February, 1468, and he was buried in a churchyard in Mainz with very little fanfare for someone who, as I've said, changed the course of human history so immeasurably. And what's worse, during the Second World War, the church that he was buried next to was destroyed, and so we've actually lost the, the exact location of his grave as well, something of, a, of an ignominious end for someone whose invention would so drastically alter the course of civilization. But look, I've been going on and on about how important the printing press is as an invention. For the last half an hour or so, I've been talking about how great this thing is without really explaining why. So let's get stuck into that properly. The printing press is, I think it's fair to say, up there with things like penicillin, the compass, the wheel, in terms of how drastically it changed humanity because of the revolution that it brought about when it brought about when it comes to the access we have to information. Today, we live in the information age, supported by what is sometimes referred to as a knowledge economy, an economy that fuels innovation and progress based on highly skilled activities that require a lot of knowledge to perform. Before the knowledge economy, we had industrial economies where unskilled labour mass-produced products, and before that, agrarian economies that were based on farming and manual labour. But today, knowledge and information and specialised skill are the driving force behind human development, and we can trace this directly back to the information revolution that Gutenberg and his press brought about. With this brand new way to produce more books and written work than ever before, the printing industry exploded. Before the end of the, 50, the 15th century, before 50 years had passed after Gutenberg had unveiled this invention, there were hundreds and hundreds of print shops that had opened all across Europe and in other areas of the world, all churning out book after book after book. This increase in the amount of available reading material was absolutely staggering. Sometimes it can take a long time for technology to catch on, for people to adopt new innovations and ideas, not so with the printing press. This was such a remarkable shift in human technology that it didn't take any time at all for people to realise a very good thing when they saw it. And as I say, before the end of the century, printing had flourished and, and grown to unprecedented levels that no one had seen coming in the wake of, of Gutenberg's marvellous invention here. 
to, to give you an idea of just how many books were being printed at this time, right? By the end of the 15th century, as I say, hundreds of print shops all around the world here. By the end of the 15th century, over 10 million books had been printed. And you're probably sitting there thinking, geez, well, based on the inflection that Riley used when he was explaining this to us, bloody hell, that must be a lot of books. Well, no, I've fooled you because that's not that many. Because by the time we get to the end of the 16th century, 100 years later, it was over 100 million books, a full order of magnitude more. By the time we get to the end of the 18th century, over a billion books had been printed. This was technology that was very swiftly and very enthusiastically adopted, and it grew exponentially as more and more people turned to books as a, as a, as a source of information, the likes of which had never been so widely accessible to so many people. The increase in the amount of available reading material, it was staggering. It, it, with this rise in books came a, ri- a rise in literacy, a rise in the number of writers and authors, including people who could just make a living off of the written word. And of course, the rapid dissemination of ideas across great distances. And this is what is really important. Books were used to spread information and knowledge on all sorts of topics across all parts of the world. Art, science, history, religion, so much more. The sheer volume of books printed meant that it was impossible to stop this spread of new knowledge. People could educate themselves on all sorts of topics without ever having to meet an expert in person and listen to them speak. They could just read their words in a book instead. And this accelerated things like scientific progress. Scientists spread across vast distances could still learn from and collaborate with each other as their ideas were published in scientific journals and books. In Europe, it also spurred on the Reformation, as Protestant religious leaders now had access to locally translated and printed religious text rather than just the Catholic Bible that was only ever printed in Latin. European Christians now had direct access to their holy book in their language rather than it being gate-kept by the Catholic clergy. Speaking of Latin, by the way, um, the printing press was also a big part of the decline of Latin. Um, Latin had been something of a pan-European language before the print uh, the printing press came along. Um, but, but when the printing press came, it, it naturally what came with it was a huge rise in the use of, of local languages as, as these languages were used to, to print books for, for local people. Before this, if you wrote a book, you'd write it in Latin. So it could be read across Europe, in France, the Holy Roman Empire, Italy, wherever. But now there was no need to do that. Italians could print their books in Italians. Germans could could print their books in, in German and, and, and so on. So video killed the radio star and the printing press killed Latin. Um, incidentally, by the way, uh, the elevation of, of local languages to text in these books helped very slowly but surely uh, to standardise these languages from a technical standpoint and things like their spelling and grammar, although that did take quite a while and dictionaries didn't come along for another couple of centuries yet. But all the same, uh, the the uh, standardisation and, and development of, of local languages, regional languages, is, was aided enormously by the printing press as there was a renewed interest in printed materials of these specific languages rather than just things being printed across Europe in Latin. I should mention too, we've spent a lot of time talking about books. It wasn't just books. People began printing newspapers and and pamphlets and other sort of uh, less permanent printed materials. So people were better informed of day-to-day affairs as well as larger and more weighty topics. And so the end result of the 
vast quantities of written material and easy access to them brought about by the printing press had one overall effect, one that I think we take very much for granted today, the democratization of knowledge, taking knowledge out of the hands of the well-educated elite and spreading it uniformly across entire populations. As long as you could read, and so many, so many people learnt to in the wake of the printing press, as long as you could read, you could now access information in the same way that anyone else could. And you could begin to start thinking all of those dangerous thoughts that those who had had a firm grip on power would really rather you didn't. Public libraries opened. They collected books of all stripes for people of all stripes to come and read. And people connected with each other like never before brought together by shared interests in topics that they found in these books. Communities of all kinds arose, spurred on by the spread of more and more information on their chosen topics, whether it was scientific or, or historical societies, whether it was people brought together by art or culture, religion, whatever it was, books were the glue that held these new communities together. The printing press brought, brought about an unprecedented time of human interconnectedness, as books and the ideas that they held spread further and faster and to more people than ever before. And colossal shifts took place in society, and culture and art and science and religion and so many other areas as literacy rates skyrocketed and ordinary people began to educate themselves on everything from history to music to science. Of course, backward institutions like the Catholic Church leaned heavily on printers throughout Europe and censorship of many works was rife, but all the same, Ideas flourished and prospered, and ultimately, the democratization of knowledge won out. And today, as I've said so many times, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that if we want to learn about something, we can do it. We can, I mean, we, look, we have another world changing invention to facilitate that in the internet. But before Gutenberg, before his printing press, you couldn't just read a book. They were prohibitively expensive, they were relatively few in number. You couldn't just decide you wanted to learn about, I don't know, the life cycle of turtles or how iron is forged or the history of ancient Rome. This information wasn't available to the overwhelming majority of people. But with the printing press, with the free spread of ideas, with knowledge and information more available than it ever had been in human history, the world changed forever. And today, thankfully, in most parts of the world, we still do have access to all this information and so much more. You're probably sick of me saying it, but the printing press changed the world forever. It really did. And even something like you sitting here listening to this podcast, this, this history of the printing press itself, it's only really possible because the printing press ex existed in the first place, because of Gutenberg's technological marvel. He was in the right place at the right time to unveil this incredible invention. And every human on earth who has ever opened a book for any reason, whether it's learning or research or just entertainment, we all owe Johann Gutenberg a great debt of thanks. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Gutenberg and the printing press. Not so much the story of Gutenberg and more the the story of the printing press. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time, but never really found the right way to frame it because Gutenberg's story is so sparse. But talking about 
such an incredible invention. I mean, you can tell I'm a fan of it, right? The printing press. It, it's it's a story that even if it's a story of a, of a device rather than a person, I'm more than happy to bring it to people. And An absolutely fascinating thing, a fascinating device, something that I'm so grateful exists because without it, who knows where we'd be. Anyway, good on you, Gutenberg. Thanks so much for everything, mate. And thank you to you as well, the listener. For listening to this dumb podcast week in and week out. Halfhousehistory.net, of course, is where you can find old episodes if you want to go and listen to them. You can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you to all the people leaving reviews. Well over 600 uh, five-star reviews on Spotify, so thank you so much to the people who are going and doing that. The iTunes reviews aren't too bad either. Um, if you want to support the show in a more uh, tangible sense, in, in, in the sense that it's the, the money that you will part with is tangible, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash halfhousehistory and sign up there, or you can buy some merch. Uh, there's also exclusive patron-only merch if you want to sign up and, uh, and get your hands on that, uh, as well as all sorts of other benefits, as behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, all the stuff. You, you, you hear it every week. So if you want to sign up and do that, it would be fantastic. Thank you to all the new – had a couple of new patrons this week. Thanks very much for jumping on board. Uh, it's great to have you along. Uh, but for those of you who uh, aren't signing up on Patreon, no worries. The show, of course, will always be readily available and free, as information should be. Um, uh, but all I ask is that you uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Make sure that the free spread of information is is hurried along a little further uh, with the most powerful form of marketing, that is word of mouth. I don't do any marketing for this for this show. It is 100% just listener-driven, so I owe a great debt of gratitude, not just to Gutenberg, but to you, the listener, for spreading the word of, uh, of Half-House History. I don't put any ads up. Um, it is just spread because... Listeners come across it and tell each other about it and all that sort of stuff. So thank you so much to everyone who's uh, who's fighting the good fight to get those numbers up. Got to get those numbers up. But that is that. See you back here next week for more Half-Hour History. I'm looking forward to your company then. Until then, leaving you the question posed about printers. A more modern question, though. This one comes to us from Redditor 6HMinutes, who asks, I bought a laser printer, but, but I can only get it to make images on paper. How do I get it to print lasers? <laughs> <laughs>